According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in the book of Hebrews. We are in Hebrews once again. Hebrews chapter 11. We introduced this chapter uh, last week or the week before already, and now we're uh, starting to work our way through. We've really been in the first three verses, and uh, we should wrap that up here this morning and then move on. We want to look at Abel and Enoch and Noah. So verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. If we uh, go that far, I doubt it, we'll see. God's, uh, God's faithful. It's Potluck Sunday, though, and so by the end of the hour, folks are getting hungry, and the food starts to, the aroma starts to drift into the room, and so it becomes a test of our faith and our devotion to the Lord as we study to show ourselves approved. All right, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds, the ages were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things which are visible. We have the invisible and invisible realms of creation, and the invisible realm actually drives the visible realm, and humanity is the resolution to the angelic conflict as we understand it. A lot of principles to be gleaning out of these verses, and we want to make sure that we're solid as we proceed. Before we do, though, remember God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father's faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding and to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning rejoicing in your faithfulness. Father, we are here in obedience to the command, and yet we are delighted. It's a command that we love to obey. When your word tells us that we are to present ourselves before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so we make our presentations here and now, Father. We are standing in your presence. I thank you for our Savior who makes it possible for us to enter within the veil that is his flesh, that we stand before your glory. And we present ourselves. Father, we are here as workmen. We want to learn so that we can live. We want to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ so that we can better glorify Him with everything that we think, say, and do. So, Father, take hold of our study. Open the eyes of our understanding. Give us the ears to hear. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so as we worked our way through, and really we spent the bulk of our time in the definitions of faith that are found in verse 1, the substance of things hoped for, the proof, the proving evidence of things not seen, is that we, uh, although we are aliens and strangers in this lost and dying world, this world is not our home, that we have an invisible component to ourselves and our soul and spirit, and really we function in the heavenly places in Christ. And so this should be normal for us with the eyes of our heart, with our spiritual eyes of faith to be able to to function with the things that have not yet materialized on this earth. The kingdom is not here yet until the king returns and takes his seat on the throne of David in Jerusalem. And so we operate on a faith basis and this is nothing new. Uh, believers have always operated on a faith basis. And this chapter gives us a, a hall of fame, if you will. It's like Cooperstown, only better. It's, uh, they're not baseball players, they're Old Testament saints. And by faith, they have obtained a testimony. And part of that testimony is being communicated <clears throat> through the verses of this chapter. <clears throat> and so, 
We worked our way through verse 1, and we talked about the nature of faith. I'm not going to review this. If you want it, it's available on the website. The MP3s are sitting there on the website. You can go get them at any time. We talked about hypostasis, talked about elenkos, the uh, substance and the, uh, the proof, the evidence of things not seen. And what's interesting about hypostasis is theologically we center on the, the nature of Christ and that he has the nature of God and he has the nature of man and he is the God-man. And so through church history, uh, we have developed, Christianity has developed the doctrine of the hypostatic union. And the hypostatic union speaks of Jesus and true deity, undiminished deity, true humanity united together in one person. Both natures are, are united together in the person of God the Son, of Jesus Christ. And so that's the doctrine of hypostatic union. And if that helps you, when we understand that faith is the hypostasis, that faith is by the very nature of the things hoped for. By very nature, when you think about Jesus, by his very nature is undiminished deity. By his very nature is true humanity. Faith, by its very nature, is the hoped-for things, the substance, the nature of those hoped-for things. And that might, that might be useful for you as you think your way through the, uh, the proof, the conviction of things not seen. We talk about all the witnesses in verse 2. And I don't know if this is exactly where that phrase, can I get a witness, comes from. Uh, we don't use it so much anymore, at least not in our faith tradition. But there are churches that will throw it around a lot. Can I get a witness? All right. And then, you know, you get an amen or something from the, from the, the pews. In any event, what we're looking at in verse 2, for by it, that's by faith, by the hypostasis and the elenkos, for by faith, the men of old gained approval, gained approval. And we really got to retranslate that. They obtained a testimony. They obtained in martyreo witnessing, they obtained a witness or a faithful testimony. And that's the better way to translate the expression and to understand it. Um, to me, we just, we get into danger, uh, danger territory here only because our culture seems to be uh, absorbed with approval and we want to gain people's approval and we want other people's approval. And there's, there's whole social media endeavors that are gained about finding approval in the eyes of people that can be, uh, whatever, impressed with what we're doing. And so, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but the whole language of gained approval carries so much baggage these days, I'd rather just uh, stop using it and, and actually have a better rendering of the, the martyreo or the martyria uh, expressions when we encounter them. So the idea is a witness, some, something you're willing to testify to in court or something that God is willing to testify to. And we went through the, the five different test, uh, testimonies that we have. God himself witnesses to our faithfulness. The scriptures witness, uh, and all of these saints have their testimony that's recorded in the scriptures that last for all eternity, witnessed by men. Now, it's not wrong for your faith ministries to be witnessed by men. And, and I realize that sometimes, uh, because of whatever reason, we, we, we shy away from that. We don't want to boast improperly, or we want to, you know, we, we don't want to ruin our humility with, with something problematic. But there's nothing wrong with testifying to faithfulness because that's boasting in the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so um, in Acts 6.3, those first deacons could be selected 
because they had obtained a witness that they were faithful men, that they were men of faith, that they would be well suited to minister to the widows in that chapter, in that capacity. In Acts chapter 10, it was Cornelius who was witness to, that uh, everyone could bear witness to Cornelius and his faith. And uh, even though he's a Roman, even though he was a Gentile, he uh, was a blessing to the Jewish people. In fact, in Hebrews, in uh, Acts 10, it says, the whole nation bears witness to the godliness of Cornelius. That's quite a testimony if the entire nation can bear witness. And other verses, Acts 16, 2, there was a testimony. Timothy had obtained a testimony as being a faithful brother, being a faithful man. Paul said he wanted this man to go with him. This is how Timothy joined the, the second missionary journey. And in fact, it's interesting calling him a man in that chapter. I think he was 10 years old or thereabouts, as I estimate it, in, uh, in my New Testament uh, chronology. It's not wrong to bear witness to faithfulness because you're not puffing up somebody improperly. You're not boosting their pride. You're not stoking their ego. You're not trying to inflate anything. You're giving glory to Jesus Christ because if there's faithfulness involved, who gets the credit? He is faithless. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. So faith achievements are witnessed by men. Faith achievements are witnessed by angels as they watch, as they celebrate in heaven, as they rejoice over one sinner who repents. And then the non-faith achievements, the deeds of the wicked, the deeds of the carnal, when we're out of fellowship, when we are producing our wood, hand stubble, thank God, they are burned to the judgment seat of Christ and they are never mentioned again. They're never remembered again. The deeds, the, the uh, non-faith achievements are eternally forgotten. Psalm 9 and Proverbs 10 that address those. Now moving on to verse 3, by faith we understand, by faith we understand, you and I, and the author includes himself in this, the author, I think this is the fullest of the we's that we have anywhere in the book of Hebrews. Sometimes the we uh, expressions are limited to the author and his team, his fellow authors, his co-authors, the senders of the epistle to the original recipients. Sometimes though the we's are more encompassing and they include the readers as well. So it's the author, his fellow writers, and the recipients that are all put together into the body of Christ and all combined with a we. And I think that's the best to understand here. He's not excluding his readers from this understanding. So by faith we understand that the ages were made, were fashioned or prepared by the Word of God, by the rhema to theu, not the logos, but the rhema to theu. So by faith we understand that the worlds, the ages were prepared by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of or fashioned from the things which are visible. The visible realm, in other words, humanity, this physical world that we live in and the arrangement thereof is predicated, it comes from, it's based on, it's the outworking and solution to the invisible realm, to the angelic conflict, to the fall of Satan, and the one-third of the angels that went with him in his rebellion. And so these things, I think, are vital for us to recognize. Understanding the plan of God, this is a faith achievement. It looks forward and it looks back. We can see all of the ages. We can look forward to the things we don't see yet. We can see the unseen. We can look forward to the, to the millennium. We can look forward to after the millennium. Because there's a thousand years in the millennium, there's a thousand generations after the millennium. 
the fullness of times that the God Himself is looking forward to as He unfolds His, His dispensational plan. And by faith, we can look forward to see that. By faith, we can also look back. We can look back to the angelic realm. We can look back to the human, to the early Gentile dispensation, Israel's dispensation, the whole span from Alpha to Omega in uh, the unfolding of God's plan. Faith lets us do that, looking forward and looking back. Really, what a great contrast between the Logos and the Rhema. When you, when you understand the doctrine from John chapter 1, it's the Logos who created the heavens and the earth. And the physical realm was created by the Logos. John 1 and verse 3, the Logos creative work brought a physical material universe into existence out of nothing. The Latin ex nihilo means out of nothing. It was just he spoke and the universe came into being. And all the record, we got the six-day account in Genesis, we've got Colossians 1 that we see where he's the creator of all things, visible and invisible. The creative work of the Logos brought a physical material universe into existence, ex nihilo, that is out of nothing. Also, by the way, it brought the, I should have added this, it added the spiritual immaterial universe. I think they're superimposed one on top of the other. They're superimposed so that the angels occupy... I mean, they could be here in this room with us right now. We just don't see them because that spiritual dimension is laid over top of this earthly dimension. However you want to model that or envision that, there's different ways. But then we have the rhema. So the Logos had a creative work. The rhema has a preparative work. The rhema is actually ordering, structuring, designing, uh, providing the proper sequence. Uh, you may have noticed that Adam and Eve were not the first pastor and pastor's wife. All right, it wasn't the church age back then. It wasn't the body of Christ. It wasn't. It, we have an order for the Gentiles, for Israel, for the church. And even within each stewardship, there's an order within the ages. Innocence preceded conscience, for example. Uh, for Israel, promise preceded law. Why was the law given 430 years after promise? What is the, not only the reason for the sequence, but why in that order? See, all of this in the wisdom of God to unfold these things. Why was the church kept a mystery? Why was it unrevealed? There's no Hebrew uh, scripture that reveals the mystery doctrine like the New Testament reveals it in, uh, in, in uh, especially uh, Ephesians and Colossians, for example. Why was mystery doctrine withheld? So understanding that preparative work in the successive ages, understanding their progressive visibility, not only to our eyes, but to the angel's eyes as well. What to our wondering eyes should appear, (laughs) right? So things that the angels long to look. We're told that. Things into which angels long to look because they're watching. And they, 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 have, they can read what we read. I mean, they know what the Bible talks about. They know there's a rapture coming up, and after the rapture is the tribulation. Uh, I don't think angels are confused like we are in pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. I think they're solid on their rapture understanding. But in any event, they're, they're properly pre-trib like we are. And, uh, the, uh, and they know that tribulation is next. They know that the millennium is after that. They understand that at the end of the millennium, there's a Gog-Magog rebellion, and then the destruction of the heavens and the earth. A new heavens and new earth are on the way. And they understand these things. This is, this is what they can look forward to see because it's been revealed in 
the Scriptures. And so this plan of God, I think it's vital. And there are folks that will poo-poo it. There are pastors even that minimize it. I've encountered, maybe you've encountered the attitude that says, oh, you know, why do you have to be so theological? Why do you have to be so focused on eschatology? Let's just, I want something practical for the here and now. Make me a better husband. Make me a better father. And I want, you know, and, and they try to reduce biblical Christianity to, uh, to a self-help book or some kind of a tips for practical daily life. All right. Let me tell you, I think eschatology is the biggest driving force for godliness that, that God has given us. What sort of people ought you to be since these things are to be destroyed in this way? What sort of people ought you to be? I think the, the, the doctrine of imminency for the pre-trib rapture of the church keeps us humble, keeps us faithful day by day, moment by moment, keeping short account so as to be in fellowship when, uh, when the Lord returns. <clears throat> so we have these issues here. All right. Now, if we're solid on our ages, if we recognize the sequence, and it's valuable for any believers, it's valuable for the church age believers in particular, but for the recipients of this epistle. Remember, the recipients of this epistle are priests, former priests, priests that left the Levitical priesthood, priests that became followers of Jesus Christ and are considering, thinking about going back, the temptation to return, the uh, throwing away of their confidence and the desire to go back. The, the, the best thing that the author of Hebrews can do for them is to remind them that our Savior has a progressive unfolding plan and they've seen that plan unfold. They observed the Messiah die and rise again and ascend to the Father's right hand. They've seen a new stewardship come upon this earth in which there is no distinction between Jew or Gentile. They've seen the unfolding of that plan. And the idea of turning the clock back, the idea of reverting back to a Levitical priesthood, to return, I mean, beyond the folly of returning to Jerusalem, you know, try to get there before the Romans surround the place, you know. And, and, and if you're successful getting back to Jerusalem before the Roman legions surround the place, why did you do that? They're all going to die. The destruction of Jerusalem is a brutal, brutal thing if you read Josephus and, and get the account on that. But beyond that, besides volunteering to go serve in a city that's about to be destroyed, reverting theologically from the Melchizedek priesthood to the Levitical priesthood? Are you kidding me? What have we been studying for 10 chapters? The superiority of the privileges that we have within the veil that is His flesh. The privileges that we have to stand before the Father's glory. The Levitical high priest goes in one day a year all by himself with blood not his own. We get to stand before the Father's glory all day, every day, and not by our lonesome. We get to go in there with the body of, of Christ. We get to go in there with one another, bearing one another's burdens and the, the worshiping uh, blessings of the Melchizedek priesthood. So I tell you, when you, when you lose your focus and, and you, um, you're disoriented on the plan of God, it becomes a problem, it becomes a big problem in a lot of ways. All right. So if you want to go back and survey believers with faith, uh, Genesis 4 is a pretty good place to go. It's the very chapter right after the fall. And so when we look at verse 4, we're echoing Genesis 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, 
through which he obtained the testimony. Through which. Now it was not the act of getting murdered by his brother. It was the act of bringing his offering. Through which he obtained a testimony. He uh, gained a witness. And the witness was God himself. So by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained the martyria, the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts. Again, not getting murdered, not dying, not the blood that goes into the ground and cries out to God. His gifts. Okay? And it was by faith, the conviction of things not seen. He was doing things in the visible realm. Cain saw him do it but it was the unseen that motivated him because it was by faith. It's the only way that it can be by faith. The conviction of things hoped for, all right? Um, God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. The example that he set, the testimony that God offered, the record that's recorded in the canon of Scripture, the example of Cain as opposed to Abel, we have the, 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 the twin examples there that we better learn from. And it still speaks to this day. When we talk about laying up treasures in heaven, Abel is still laying up treasures in heaven to this day. Abel's going to get credit for part of this sermon this morning because you're being edified and it's the fruit of Abel that makes this possible. Abel's testimony led to his martyrdom. And that's a little bit of a play on words too because it's the same word. Abel's testimony led to his martyrdom. But the testimony came first, and then he was killed for his faith. Let's, uh, let's look back at Genesis 4. you see what I'm talking about. I shouldn't assume that everybody knows this story. We uh, had an example last hour how Jesus assumed that Joseph and Mary uh, knew why he was staying in the temple. And then uh, they were frantic for three days and finally found him. And then he found out that they didn't know. He thought they knew, but they didn't know. And so when you assume that people know things and you find out they didn't know him, you have an issue. (laughs) All right? And Jesus had that, and I have that, and we all have that. So let's make sure we know the story of Cain and Abel. Genesis chapter 4. Of course, the fall of Adam and Eve is in chapter 3. I believe that their salvation, their repentance, is, and their salvation is in chapter 3. When God clothes them with animal skins, I believe that was on a faith basis, that they had to receive the clothes by faith, that they understood that the blood was shed in their place, that the cure for their nakedness was nothing they could do for themselves. They could make fig leaves for themselves. But God clothed them with the animal skins. When they accepted God's provision, it's the picture of faith. So I believe that's when Adam and Eve became believers again, got saved. But then in chapter 4, they started having their babies. And they had, I don't know how many they had. We know three by name. We know there were girls. Without girls, there's no more babies. Okay. And, uh, yeah. So the man had relations with his wife Eve. She conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have acquired, 
That's the so important. I mentioned this in Proverbs 8 the other day. This is the kana. I have kanad a man. Kana. And it's used of childbirth. This is where the humanity of Jesus was begotten by the Father in Proverbs chapter 8 with kana. So I have kanad a man child, the Lord, or with the help of the Lord. So she names him kana. She names him Cain. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Rabbis felt that they were twins. Uh, relations aren't repeated. Conception is not repeated. But the, the word birth is repeated. So on that basis, the rabbis all concluded that Cain and Abel were twins based upon the same event of marital relations in the same moment of conception. Can't prove it, but there you have it. In any event, the boys grow up. They now become workers. And that doesn't happen when they're infants. Um, so they grow up. And so Abel was a keeper of flocks. Cain was a tiller of the ground. And likely they were both married, both had children. We don't know. It doesn't state. We know that Cain is driven away after this event. Builds a city. Where did Cain get his wife? Skeptics and, oh, there's some crazy things out there. Anyway, getting ahead of myself. Abel was a keeper of flocks. Cain was a tiller of the ground. Neither one is godly. Neither one is sinful. These are just temporal life, career paths, okay? Secular work, secular work. And a believer could be either and uh, so forth. It came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. So not only is he an adult living in his own generation, producing his own income and working, he's also bringing his own sacrifice. He brings his before Abel brings his, mentioned in this chapter anyway. He is in his own capacity. This is not a, uh, you know, this is not a boy that's just going to church because his dad's making him go to church. This is an adult son in his own decision-making capacity who wants to be religious. He wants to bring a, a, a gift. And what he brings, yes, what he brings is the product of what he produced in the workplace. That is true. And what Abel brings you could say, is a product of what he produces in the workplace. Not that, you know, sheep beget sheep, we get that. Uh, but the idea is, keep it separated from the career path. It's not just, he's not just bringing it because he has plenty of sheep left over. He's bringing it because it's by faith. Faith is a response to the Word of God. That he's had teaching about why the blood sacrifice is necessary. And so he's responding to doctrine. He's responding to teaching. By faith, he brings the sacrifice. Cain's issue is not that he brought a vegetable. Cain's issue is that there was no faith. There was no response to doctrinal teaching. And of course, there's no blood sacrifice to picture uh, the, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. In a sense, Cain is replicating the fig leaves. Right? I mean, in a sense, is he not? Cain brings an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of the flock. Now, on his part, from his volitional capacity as an adult son, brought of the firstlings of his flock. Beyond the fact that it was an animal, beyond the, flack, uh, beyond the issue of, of that it was blood being shed, an animal was dying, firstlings. 
when we think about what comes into Mosaic Law under first fruits principles. And, uh, you know, not waiting to the end of the harvest and seeing what, what your surplus is and what you have left over, what you can afford and what doesn't, you know, hurt you too much. Uh, you can throw your spare change at the Lord and then be impressed with your goodness. Or the principle of first fruits is you're given off the top and you're not sure what the rest of the harvest is going to be like. And it doesn't matter because the Lord comes first and he gets the first fruits. He gets the first gleanings. He gets the firstlings. He gets the firstborn. What if, well, what if that sheep doesn't have a secondborn? I'm giving the onlyborn. If, if it turns out that this is the only live birth that this sheep produces, well, if it is, it is. You're giving the firstborn because the firstborn has doctrinal significance. All right. So he brings the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. The concept there related to the fat. Someday I need to teach the doctrine of fat. Right now I'm Still studying. Preparing to teach the doctrine of fat. All right. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offerings. Why? This is so key. Okay. And Hebrews tells us this. The principle is faith. The principle is pleasing. What pleases the Lord? What does he regard? What does he consider? It's not arbitrary. There are reasons for what he regards and why. And we'll see this. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. The, the issue here is faith being the human response to God's truth. Now for Cain and for his offering. Now I think that's significant because there's two objects for the Lord's regard or lack of regard. In Abel, the Lord had regard for Abel, the person, and had regard for his offering, his act of faith, his faith expression. So there's the person and the work. The person of Abel and his faith expression. But for Cain, the person, and for his non-faith expression, because it was not by faith, his offering, we could call it works. The opposite of faith is works. So for Cain and his non-faith offering... He had no regard. And that's just the issue. So what happens? Cain becomes very angry and his countenance fell. So he has the mental attitude and then he has the expression of that mental attitude in his demeanor, in his countenance, in his outlook. So much so that he talks about it. It becomes obvious as if God can already look upon his heart, but we can all read the countenance. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? Two steps. Why didn't you catch it at the mental attitude stage? You know, if you confess your mental attitude sin before it gets to a verbal sin or an overt sin, that's always better. If you let it linger and let it go to the second and third stage, now there's just more confession you've got to do afterwards and it's more um, discipline that you line yourself, up, line yourself up for in the meantime. So why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? Think about who gets affected by the countenance. Think about the impact that an angry husband has to his wife, an angry father has to his child. Now confess it at the, at the anger stage before it gets to your countenance stage. If you do well, look at all this long conversation. The Lord sure is talking to a guy an awful lot 
to a guy that he is not regarding, that he didn't regard the sacrifice. But notice this becomes the, uh, the occasion in which an unbeliever can be reached. Speaking the truth to an unbeliever. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. Its desire is for you. See, sin is a, is a, a predator. It waits to pounce. It's just waiting. You must master it. Now that right there, and you wonder, you know, like when Adam and Eve were hiding and the Lord went and He talked to them. Gave them an opportunity to confess and they didn't. They were blaming everything, you know. Eve blamed the serpent, Adam blamed Eve, and there was all kinds of blame. And yet God so patiently keeps going to these people, keeps asking these questions, keeps triggering their thinking. And evidently it bothered Cain enough that instead of responding to what the Lord said, he goes to his brother. And that, I think verse 8 gets ignored, and I haven't heard a sermon on it, but verse 8, Cain told Abel his brother. Told him what? Told him why. Told him him the whole discussion, I think. I mean, told him the content of the whole interaction with, uh, with the Lord. So Cain told Abel his brother. What's Abel supposed to say about it? Yeah, the Lord's right. Uh, yeah, why is your countenance fallen? Yeah, uh, you know, brother, you need to get saved. Well, his response is not, is not uh, given, but it is an event. And it's an event in a sequence that precedes the next event. So it follows the uh, discussion with the Lord, is a discussion with Abel. Then, another event. So it came about when they were in the field. Now this is a subsequent time. So this is premeditated, there's planning, there's um, other considerations. And we find out from the New Testament, Satan was involved, that he was of the evil one. There was satanic motivation. So it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And so, uh, <clears throat> yeah, the first, uh, the first martyr I try to tell our pastoral students this. I say, you want to be a shepherd? You realize the first shepherd in the Bible was the first martyr. Okay, just recognize. Just saying there's principles of shepherding throughout the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And it's, uh, it's not an accident, I don't think, that uh, the first martyr. And so here he is. And he thinks he gets away with it. Killed him. Now it doesn't say that he buried him, but we learn later because the blood is crying up from the ground that that must have been the case. It's the tendency of human guilt to cover things up. Fig leaves for nakedness, uh, burying a, a dead brother, things like that. So the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Here's the Lord again, more questions. <laughs> okay, more questions. It's like questions in Genesis. I tell you, I'm going to start that multi-million dollar organization international organization called Questions in Genesis. And here's another one. Where is Abel, your brother? And uh, he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now he's got a question. Am I my brother's keeper? As if you can hide stuff from God. As if God doesn't know all these things. Now admittedly, he's an unbeliever. How much doctrine does he know? How much exposure does he have to who God is? We don't know. 
So what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. This comes up again. By the way, the connection of blood with the ground is, is vital. It comes up again and again in Mosaic law. A land can be defiled. Israel had to go into captivity. They had not given their land Sabbath rest. Their land had been defiled. Two things, bloodshed and fornication. They will defile a land. And, and where are we? <laughs> where is the United States of America but the global capital of bloodshed and fornication? You know, and all the idolatry and demonism that goes with it. How defiled is our land? You know? And this is the thing, too, that the world has no answers for. The world doesn't think it's a thing. The world says, hey, it's fun, do whatever. <laughs> wow. And where's the no concept that the, the, the flagrant promiscuity is defiling the land itself? We're putting our nation under divine discipline. Yeah, we, we taught that. Isaiah and Jeremiah teach that. This is where real land pollution comes in. It's in our sin. In any event. Um, so he's driven away. He's given a curse. Uh, yet there's grace in it when he says it's too great to bear. And God puts a mark on him so he's protected. No kinsmen are going to come along to reap the kinsman vengeance that he was afraid of. Whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. So there's a protection there. Justice has to be administered properly and not a, not a clan warfare thing. We get that later in Mosaic Law as well. This is still real early. So uh, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Why east? <laughs> you know, why this proximity? Why is there that sense that he wants to keep looking at it and try to find another way in? Anyway, Cain had relations with his wife. Where'd she come from? Well, one of his sisters. Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. There's no issue there. Chapter 5 gets us that story. And it was curious to me, when you get to the very end of this chapter, in verse 25, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. Now, Eve has always had a spiritual reason for why she's given names to these boys. To Cain, to Abel, now to Seth. And we don't know any other names, but these three. But every time she gives a name, she has a spiritual reason for doing so. And in this case, the, the idea is appointment. An appointed one. And she views Seth as an appointed one. And that's curious to me, because they had other sons and daughters. They had other sons and daughters that were told about. That's in chapter 5 and verse 4. I mean, you live 900 years, you can have a lot of babies in that time. We don't know. We can kind of estimate maybe, I don't know, we have a fertility age for women these days. We get a window there of some 30 years or thereabouts, right? But imagine, and that's on a scale when you're only going to live 100 years or less. Imagine, multiply that now times nine. If it's a proportion, we don't know. But theoretically... You know, that's not just 30 years of childbearing, that's 30 times 9 or more. We don't know. Noah was 500 when he became the father of Ham, Shem, and Japheth. So, how many babies can you have in that length of time? All right. But now notice, when she gives the name Seth, she called his name Seth, and um, 
And the name is Appointment. She said, God has appointed for me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And it's specifically recognized. And I think, to me, they were done. They had had all the kids that were going to have. They had finished that phase of their life. But then God provided one more, I believe a miraculous one more birth, specifically to be the replacement for Abel. And it's a good thing he did too, because the line of Christ comes through, comes through uh, Seth. Anyway, of course, God knows what he's doing. In place of Abel, for Cain killed him. So, you know, in other words, it's not just that she gets pregnant again and has another baby and says, okay, this will be Abel's replacement. You know, the next one out of the 500 kids I'm going to have. No, this was a very specific, uh, purposeful child that came in later years when his siblings are all adults. One last child to raise. Anyway, Abel's testimony led to his martyrdom. We want to keep this in our thinking because uh, this is one of our options for checking out is physical death. The other option, of course, is rapture. And that's the next example we're going to get to when we get to Enoch because we have both the Abel model and the Enoch model, uh, physical death or rapture, the two options that you and I have. There's also the Noah model whereby God will preserve the tribulational saints through the... uh, tribulation. Different uh, typology in these early stories. Now, Jesus will reference this event. Jesus referenced the blood of Abel as the opening act in the Old Testament history of martyrdom. Let's turn over now uh, to Matthew. This is on our way back to Hebrews. Matthew's on the way back anyway. Matthew 23. This is like stopping at the store for milk on your way home because it's on the way. We're stopping in Matthew on the way back to Hebrews. And you can look at either Matthew 23 or Luke 11, the parallel accounts. Let's just look at Matthew here. Jesus referenced the blood of Abel as the opening act in the Old Testament history of martyrdom. And uh, Matthew 23, he's pronouncing woes to different groups, mostly Pharisees. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And um, it's curious. They were, in their generation, they were the holiest guys around. Just ask them, they'll tell you. And, and it was publicly known. It was well known that, ooh, those guys are set apart. That's what Pharisee means. Those guys are, are set apart. They're holy. They're, they're better than us. Ooh, look what those guys do. And uh, they're the best ever at keeping the law. And he calls them hypocrites. He says you should clean the outside of the cup and the inside of the cup. And he just has different uh, expressions that he uses here. So uh, in verse 26 or verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Confess your sins, be restored to fellowship, walk in the light, as we would say today. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Yeah, I walk through a cemetery and see these marble things, these mausoleums, and they're pretty, you know. 
The uh, Taj Mahal is a mausoleum, and there's bones in there. Dead bones are not pretty. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You're impressing your fellow Jews, but God's not impressed. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And uh, again, it's a display of their piety. It's a display of how great they are. And people are all impressed. Ooh, look what they've done. They built this great monument to uh, whoever, you know, Isaiah or Jeremiah, whatever. They built a monument to a prophet. Isaiah was traditionally sawn in two, and I'm not sure how you draw, build a monument for that. But anyway, but they have this attitude. Here's their attitude. If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of blood, in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. In other words, we're so great. We're better than they. No, you're not. And Jesus is going to nail them right here and now. Those generations murdered prophets. This generation is going to crucify the Messiah. You think you're better than them? You have this outward show that you're so religious and so squeaky clean and whatever, and you you have all these water rituals. You never eat with unwashed hands, and you never, you know, you wouldn't let a prostitute wipe your feet with her hair. <laughs> you let her in your house, though. I don't know how she got to that party, but it's curious to me, okay? These Pharisees, and they were so religious, we would have never have done that. No, you're doing far worse. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. He says, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. In our Colossian series, we're talking about plerao and the filling principles and what pleroma is all about and how do we uh, obey these commands to be filled with the Spirit. There's, there's a lot of filling doctrines that we want to have a better grasp on. But here's a filling. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? This is Jesus' sanctified name calling. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. So that... Now, this is still a future act. And as Jesus is prophesying this as a future act, it, we might think of it as having an early church age fulfillment. It's actually better to think of it as a tribulational fulfillment. Or both. But notice, upon you may fall all the guilt of the righteous blood shed on earth. So all of it gets compiled. All of it gets the, the guilt of which gets reserved for these guys. The guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. From A to Z, Abel to Zechariah. Coincidence in the English language that A to Z works out pretty well for us, okay? But Abel in Genesis to Zechariah in Second Chronicles, okay? That would be like saying Genesis to Revelation today. It's the canon, the Hebrew canon of Scripture. The Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. 
the Tanakh. And the, the end of the Bible is Second Chronicles. Does that bother you? The end of the, the, end of the uh, Hebrew canon of Scripture. It's been silent for 400 years. They haven't added anything since Malachi. Okay? And Malachi went into the prophets, into the Nevi'im. Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. So the third division of the Old Testament is the writings, the closing of which is Chronicles. And we say Second Chronicles, but it's really just Chronicles in the Hebrew. The Septuagint split it A and B with the first and second, but that's, that's a different story. Today we would say from Genesis to Revelation. And really, from the Garden of Eden to the new heavens and the new earth. Right? With a tree of life in both places. We talk, we're talking on a spectrum from the whole counsel of the Word of God. And in Jesus' day, that was it. So he says, every righteous, all the righteous blood, all the, the guilt of all righteous blood shed on earth, from Abel to Zechariah, you murdered between the temple and the altar, it can fall upon you. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. This generation. <laughs> and you know what? Did they respond to it? How did the Pharisees did the did the Pharisees do any better here than Cain did when the Lord went to Cain? No. No. They get this rebuke, and what do they do? They mock it. They demand Barabbas' release, and they say, His blood be on us and upon our children. They mock this very prophecy when they're demanding Barabbas from, from Pontius Pilate. And when they're demanding the crucifixion of Jesus, as he said they would. Anyway, what a powerful message. And the Lord used it. Now there's a significance here that the Apostle John's going to write about. More than 50 years later, John heard this message. John was there that day when he was preaching to the scribes and Pharisees and the, and the uh, <coughs> hypocrites. And then more than 50 years later, he writes about it in 1 John 3. Talks about Cain and Abel. First John 3, and we have the contrast of believers and unbelievers. The blessing we have to love one another, that too becomes a testimony. To practice righteousness and uh, as testimony to our salvation status. Remember, Cain, Abel was not, didn't become a believer because of the sacrifice he brought. He obtained a witness that his deeds were righteous. They were righteous because he was walking by faith. Don't, don't turn the cart and the horse around. You, until you're saved, you can't do any righteous deed. But as a believer, as a righteous one by grace through faith, you can respond to God's commands by faith and you can bring a righteous sacrifice. God will have re regard for you and your sacrifice. That's the, that's the right order. And so the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. You talk about a beginning. This goes back to Cain and Abel even. But the Lord said, love your brother. Uh, we should love one another, and not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. 
Cain was of the evil one. We have the children of God and the children of the devil. Jesus told the Pharisees, you're of your father, the devil. You want to do the things that please him, John 8, 44. And so here's Cain of the evil one. He's not a believer. He's the first of the unbelievers that died and went to hell. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. This is the testimony. This is the witness. And he knows it. God knows it. The angels know it. Humans know it. We're in the image of God. These things are plain to be seen. So Abel's testimony led to his martyrdom. Jesus referenced this blood as the opening act of the Old Testament history of martyrdom with the significance that the Apostle John will write about more than 50 years later. Hebrews references Abel as the first testimony of faith. As I said, I think we can read between the lines and we can, we can presume that Adam and Eve put their garments on by faith but there's no written explicit testimony of faith in Genesis or Hebrews or anywhere. In fact, if you put a gun to my head and say, prove to me biblically, absolutely biblically, that Adam and Eve are in uh, heaven today instead of hell today, in other words, that they got saved after they fell, biblically I can't point to a single verse other than what we infer from the animal garments that they accepted that God doesn't force anything on anybody, that when He provided it for them, they volitionally accepted what He sovereignly provided. And so we can come to a theological view, but it's not explicit. Back to Hebrews then. Hebrews references Abel as the first testimony of faith. After verses 1-3, through the prologue that defines faith The very first example of faith is not by faith Adam, not by faith Eve, not by faith Cain, it's by faith Abel. By faith Abel is the first testimony. Here in verse 4, and also we include them in verse 13, all of these died in faith. Hebrews 4.13 So all of these, that would include Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah. There's five uh, individuals mentioned, included as the all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance. Now just, we'll talk about the others shortly, but take verse 13 rewrite it now back in, or rethink of it now back in verse 4. Because all these, having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, that, that includes Abel, by faith, Abel. Having seen and welcomed from a distance. Every Gentile Old Testament believer walking by faith had promises. Promises of a seed of the woman, promises of a redeemer. Promises of a future judgment of the wicked. Promises that were prophesied by Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam. Likely prophesied in all seven generations from Adam. But we know Enoch specifically. We'll get to Enoch here next. But realize in verse 13, and it's not the only one, 
uh, the, the, the outline of this chapter is remarkable because you have a few verses of, of Old Testament stories and then you get a, a verse or two or more of, of commentary. The author of Hebrews is making a, a divine commentary. The Holy Spirit is making a divine commentary on what we just read. So verse 13 and following, and really, let's look at the rest of these. Verse 13, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance. Abel welcomed the promises from a distance. Having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Abel confessed that he was a stranger and an exile on the earth. This verse proves it. For those who say such things make clear they are seeking a country of their own. Cain went out and built a city. You know what he named it? Cain. Okay? Like I would go and build the city of Bob and everyone can come to Bob and Bob would be a fun place. First thing I'd put in would be a pluckers. And we'd, we'd have a Bible church too. I mean, we'd... Cain builds a city called Cain, names it after himself. Anyway, what was Abel looking for? A country of their own, but it's a future promised country. Something that the Lord will supply that he can't do in human effort. You know, if, if, if you're Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and Cain murders Abel, I mean, there's not a lot of people. There's a huge planet. You want to go build a country? Go build a country. The land is out there. The only place you can't go is the garden with the cherubim and the sword. But he's looking by faith to what God has promised. When will that day come? Soon. The Bible says soon. Okay. Indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. Now that's, uh, how much of that applies to Abel, how much of that really is more suited to Abraham and Sarah, the most recent antecedents of this. But it's all of them. It's all of these, not just both of these, all of these. So it's Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, all of these. There'll be additional summations later, but so far it's just these five all of these, having an opportunity to return, the wish of going back to that tree of life, the wish of getting back into Eden. Of course, the flood makes that impossible. But then for Adam and Eve, I mean, I'm sorry, for Abraham and Sarah, the opportunity they had to go back to Babylon, to go back to Ur of the Chaldees, to return back to the moon god that Abraham departed from when he obeyed the Lord God of Israel. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. That includes Abel. That's Abel, Enoch, and Noah in the, in the pre-Abrahamic Gentile stewardship. A better country, a heavenly one. Heaven has to come to earth sometime because they were promised it. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. What is it that pleases him? What is it he has regard for? What is it he looks upon with joy and says, that's my boy, okay? Oh, that's my girl, okay? You watch Kevin walking in here with Rebecca and you know, man, there's a daddy that's proud of his little girl. That's our father, okay? He's not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. 
And all that without any Bible, without any Hebrew Scriptures, without any written canon in terms of Abel and Enoch and Noah. And Abraham. Abraham had no written canon. All right. You get down to verse 24. No, over to chapter 12. The author of Hebrews is still talking about the blood of Abel. There's so much doctrine in this. But when we talk about Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood, what did Jesus do? He went to the heavenly places and He cleansed the heavenly sanctuary. He's providing for eternal redemption. The sprinkled blood of Jesus, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cried out from the ground, but the blood of Jesus bought our redemption. There is doctrine in these blood passages. All right, then we have Enoch. Did I say at the beginning of this hour we're going to do Abel, Enoch, and Noah? Well, there's Enoch. Enoch's testimony led to his rapture. Let me give you something to chew on. We can talk about it over lunch. Each had a testimony of faith. One experienced physical death, one experienced rapture. And those are our two options. For the body of Christ, I'm, I'm praying rapture. Not that I'm afraid of death, but I just think it's every generation of the, of the bride has wanted it. And I want it. I'm I'm extra selfish because I want to be the evangelist that leads that last person to to faith. I want to be the evangelist that finishes the bride of Christ. So that when the final unbeliever gets saved, when the final unbeliever receives eternal life, when the bride is complete, that very last saved person finishes the bride, that very moment we hear the trumpet. Wow! And I get to tell that story forever. Forever and ever. I get to tell that story to a thousand generations on the new earth. Let me tell you how the bride was completed. Let me tell you about that day when that unbeliever came to faith. All right. Well, we'll come back next week and we'll go from Genesis 4 to Genesis 5. We're going to talk about Enoch and the testimony that he obtained because he was pleasing to God. And there's a doctrinal summation that's given that says without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so, testimony might lead to death. Testimony might lead to rapture. Testimony might lead to preservation through a flood. And that's the example of Noah. The third example that we get in this chapter. But all of these died in faith. And then we get to Abraham and Sarah, heirs together of the grace of life. The husband and the wife both had to walk by faith. And so we have their example as well. Father, I thank You for this morning. I thank You for the truth of Your Word. And Father, I thank You for... Hebrews 11 is really demonstrating for us, Father, the joy that it is to to, uh, search the Scriptures and see if these things are so. It's noble-minded, Father, to compare Scripture to Scripture, to rightly divide the Word of truth, to find the doctrinal impact of Abel in Matthew and in Hebrews and in 1 John to see the connections between um, one dispensation and the next, to see the ordered sequence 
in the wisdom of, of your Son and superintending over the unfolding of this plan. So Father, we, uh, we learn these things, we study these things, uh, not just to know them, Father, but to live them out practically, to live them out in diligence. We are not of those that shrink back to destruction, but are those who by faith persevere. And I pray that not only do we learn this, but we live it out. And indeed, Father, might today be the day that the Lord Himself descends with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, that the dead in Christ might rise first, then we who remain, who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord might be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Might it even be today. Even so come, Lord Jesus. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.